What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hapnes, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me in the show is Amanda Harding, and we speak about deliberate dialogue and what it takes to prepare and create the space where wicked problems can be discussed in authenticity and with all controversy. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back and be inspired. Hello, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hello. Very nice to be here. Very nice to be with you today. Yes. Curious and looking forward to speak about dialogue, deliberate dialogue today. And before we get there, I always start with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? I love that question. So again, thank you so much for having me. It's just great to be here. And it's lovely just to take some time out to to think, to pause, to learn. I'm sure lots from you as well, and to listen hard. Do I call myself a facilitator? No, I don't. Lots of people though do call me a facilitator. And so there's that whole sort of identity issue that goes on. But I have sort of got over it if people want to call me a facilitator. It's absolutely fine. I think it actually makes it reassures people. They think they have this facilitator that has these you know, magic tricks that they're going to bring into the room and fix the problems. I do try and explain that I use lots of facilitation tools. Um, I think I'm probably a quite good facilitator. I work with some great facilitators, but actually I wouldn't really call myself a facilitator. I would call myself, I don't know, a curator of conversations, a... Uh, I don't know, somebody who's just sort of living in this messy world and trying to sort of bring people together around <laughs> some difficult issues. And then behind that, I've worn so many hats in my life that there's just, as I said, I, I just don't really go with the giving ourselves labels. Literally today, I was looking at our website and one of my colleagues had given everybody a title uh, underneath them. And I actually suggest we just took all of that off. It's like, mm. they don't really, they're not really helpful. So we're just who we are. We have names and we have a bit of history behind us. And then we bring that into, into the space with the people that we exchange and engage with. That's a long answer to do I call myself a facilitator, isn't it? Sorry about that. Oh, please don't apologize. And that's exactly the reason why I ask and why I don't stop asking the question. Because I find it fascinating the reasoning behind calling ourselves or not calling, wearing the label or not, and what is it that we actually associate with the label. And and I think it's interesting that you would call yourself a curator of conversations. And it reminds me of a previous guest, and he called himself a conversation designer. And mm -hmm. I love that. And still, when I'm very honest to myself and I think, okay, so what is a conversation designer doing? Is there anything majorly different from a facilitator? What do you think? So that's an interesting one as well. And again, I find that I always find that it's a, it's a tricky question because I don't want to put anybody that calls themselves a facilitator down. I don't want to say what you do is rubbish or I don't like it or it's just I don't want to. I feel it pins me down. It mm. limits who I am. So if I'm not a facilitator, I guess it's because I 
would like to think the the practice, the work that I'm doing is broader, is wider, and is moving towards real purposeful sort of solutions to a destination which has been identified together. And I guess if I was going to put down facilitation at all, which I will try not to do too much, but I can do, is to, to say that I think one of the traps of facilitation that it can become very technical. Mm. Um, it's at that moment we do, you know, we, we have a process that we have to run through ABC. This is it. There's a blueprint to it. And the client basically decides you do so you do what they want them to do. And I just that's not how I have ever operated, and certainly it's not how I engage with the people that I sort of want to work with at all. So it's mm. it's a sort of this breadth and depth in, in terms of I hope the work that I'm doing, and it's not that fantastic facilitators don't do that. I think some of them do, but I think unfortunately there's a lot of facilitators that just are not doing that type of work yeah trying to stay very polite this is don't be polite oh uh, yeah <laughs> uh, it will come back to bite me in the end if i'm not <laughs> i hear you and i think it's then this the high art of facilitation where we can step aside from the process and work with whatever emerges in the space and then it becomes a conversation design. And I think to step into the space without a process or without the facilitator capital F and say, okay, facilitation is part of my toolbox. And I'm not coming into the space as a facilitator capital F with my process and my time timer and activities. That's what I understand. Absolutely. So this is exactly, I think what I'm talking about is I didn't I would hope that the work that I'm doing, the work that I do with the teams I work with, we I would really hope they'll be using some great facilitation tools. You know, the, the tried and tested, the new experimental ones, we're merging things together, we're discovering new things, we're adapting to, you know, I think this this is really this is fun. You know, all of that stuff. I think first of all, it's just fun, it's creative. So it's not to throw that out, but it's also to be able to say, actually, you can actually having extraordinary conversations with a great blend of people who don't necessarily agree. They might agree on the big challenge at hand, and that's probably why they've come together, but they probably they might not agree on a lot of other stuff and actually just create the conditions for those really juicy, nutty, granular conversations. Mm -hmm. And I do think that takes... I think that takes real effort and preparation and risk-taking. I think it takes huge amounts of... I don't know, sort of agility and empathy and and blending that all together. Um, that's part of, I think, what you were talking about. And I find that in, not just exciting. I find that a real, for me, that's just an imperative. It's just absolutely ne a real necessity if looking at, you know, the world today, if we're actually going to get to a better place, if we really want to see, you know, the world thriving particularly as human beings on this planet then we're going to have to really work much harder at much yeah. better, braver conversations so i guess that's where it comes in the facilitation is part of that but yeah. is only a part of it but it is it's an important part mm. and when i think of a facilitated process or when a client would call a facilitator there's usually they have an ambition or a goal for the group to achieve that nobody would be able to achieve by themselves. Mm -hmm. So what are 
than the ambitions or the goals that someone would call you in, especially as you just mentioned, that there might be different parties who don't agree. So what would be an aspiring goal for a session that you, a conversation, a dialogue that you curate? Yeah, so the sorts of dialogues, conversations that I seem to find myself really getting engaging with more and more, the ones which are just really tricky. It doesn't make life easy. So that, you know, the trickier, the, you know, what some people call the wicked problems, which are really the ones which are really have real complexity, lots of connections behind them. Some people, you know, the ones which actually look the least possible to solve, but need that blend of voices around the table who find it really hard to actually find a space and sit easily across or around the table, particularly around the table together. And, you know, to be more specific, because otherwise it sounds like a lot of what that what is she talking about. That's everything from uh, a lot of work around systems change by definition, but systems change, which could be around food systems transformation. What is it that we're eating today? anywhere around the world what is it where does that food come from who's making it how can we really improve our diets our health but also look at real changes in terms of for the people that are producing the food that are transforming those foods so that you know all the different impacts that we're having become actually positive as opposed to the multiple layers of negative impacts around the food system today so they're really connected difficult tricky complex conversations which already answers one of the questions that I had in mind when I think of wicked problems. They can be very complex on a subject matter basis. They can also be very complex on a personality yeah. basis. How do you disentangle these two? Or are these usually two separate sessions anyway? Uh, that's a great question. I love that. I hadn't thought about it in that way before. So first of all, I think it is one I don't think is separate. I think we come into any conversation as ourselves, as, as individuals, with our individual complexity, privilege, bias, power, agency, no agency, all of that. You know, We come into the conversations with that complexity. And then we come into the conversation with a, with a, a formal institutional hat on, on who it is that we are supposedly representing within that conversation, you know, myself as an individual because I'm a I'm a mum, or myself as an individual because I'm part of my local community, or because I represent an organization or a government or an industry, you know, it could be a whole range of and it's always going to be multiple bits of that. So for me, how do you actually then, and then this is a major part of I think the the work that in terms of creating the right conditions or the best quality conditions for for the best authentic dialogue conversation needs real i mean i really give it a lot of thought i don't know if an experiment with and i don't know if we're getting anywhere with it one of the parts of that is i think it's what happens in the space before the conversation actually happens mm. where does a preparation come in and, and my sense is today that the effort into the preparation not just from the people who are curating that space you know could be the what you know we've created a whole language around this, so what I call an institutional convener, the convener of the space, say it's a government or an, organ an international organization or a local community, they might be convening that space, I might be working with them, that needs already a lot of collaborative conversation. But then what happens with 
all the people that have been invited into the space and working with them over, it could be days, weeks, months, as to help prepare them so they enter into the space readied for that conversation with a bit of a better sense of who else is going to be coming in around mm-hmm. the table. You know, what, what, are the, what are the power dynamics really going on here? Do we have any common language or don't we have any common language? Do we actually have areas of acute divergence? And let's respect those and recognize those even before coming into the actual space of conversation of real, if you like, real physical conversation. And I think part of that is just that people are mentally ready to actually really go into that, that space. The space is, the expectations are already set to some extent in terms of what is our starting point. And we can actually start the conversation running because the time that is spent in any dialogue is so precious. It's like a really precious moment. So you want to make the best use of that time rather than spend the time describing to mm. each other, you know, what's the project? What do you do? You know, the, that, that sort of description process, which yeah. seems to go on often at the beginning of conversations. It's like, Renny, do we need that? I don't think we need that. And we can get over that quite quickly and use techniques. And so, yeah, I mean, that we have like tools and techniques which are, super interesting and the sort of developing to be able to actually create that preparatory space so that when we start, we're really set to actually, in a, in a way, run right from the beginning. I'm loving that. And if I understand correctly, then it's more than just being sure that everyone understands the purpose of coming together. It's really beyond the purpose. It's understanding what are the different positions that someone has so what are we really discussing about what are we opposed about so that once we step into the space we can start by finding common ground or understanding each other yeah absolutely i mean to give you an example of a like something very concrete like a concrete tool because people always like concrete tools so a concrete tool we put together something that we call a sort of reflect share blend which is just a it's a virtual written conversation space. So to launch a series of questions around the topic in question, the big challenge, that wicked problem, and to say, okay, we've got three, four, five questions. We're going to send those out as a first round to everyone that's been invited to participate in a particular dialogue, intentional, deliberate dialogue, and get people just to put in their responses, to write their responses, but in a way that is transparent so they can still be anonymous they don't have Mm -hmm. to say that they are but it's a live document people are seeing the story unfolding they're seeing what is happening in front of them in terms of responses so they can build on each other's responses and just out of curiosity for me to help me picture it what tool would you use is there Uh, a specific tool so that you have a mind map or is it just a google document it's a google form Ah. We started using Google Form and then we, we started using it in different ways. We started using a Google Form and then we, and we'd be doing it with multiple rounds. So you do a Google Form, people respond on the Google Form. We then pull all, all of those responses together. We send, we color code them. So you see every, it's not edited. It's everybody's response. Wow, so it's a big Excel sheet or a Google yeah. sheet. It's a, Google, it's a Word document. It's, and it can be pages if, if people decide to play the game, if you like, if they want to engage. Yeah. And incredibly, people do want to engage. They Everybody has got such appetite to have the real conversation. So 
everyone's always surprised. Is anybody going to actually respond? And they respond. They respond in the first round. And then there's a second round where people can then add another set of responses building again. So the people that didn't respond in the first round might get a little bit more courage or be provoked mm. and intentionally provocative questions with a little bit of context behind them. And they're legitimate, if you like. They're, they're proper, credible questions. But, you know, it's all in the question, of course, isn't it? Yes. How is it the question? So carefully crafted and then built over two or three rounds. And so this becomes a really, again, it becomes a precious document for this community. And it's a warm-up where everyone is already in the space, understands the different points of views, has learned and tried to articulate themselves. Yeah. And in a safe space because it's anonymous. So you basically take away the personal stuff and focus on the content. Absolutely. And again, it's giving real recognition to individual insight and knowledge and expertise, knowing that once you get into a common conversation space to be able to take that the next step on, we're going to be thinking much more strategically at that point. And we're going to be building on that content, but there's less space in a one, two, three day, two hour, whatever it happens to be, a uh, collective conversation space to really get into the content. So this is a really great content space, which can be built on with you know, a paper that's been written or people giving them references. You can, you can take it in lots of different directions. Yeah. What I like about that is that somehow free of judgment because everything that is put into the Google form is just there. And since you don't have the opportunity to reply or respond to a specific comment, whatever's there is there and stays there. And if people want to fill in an entire form to reply to one of the comments, so let it be. Absolutely. So it's, so again, I think part of you, you're sort of, you were asking earlier about how do you create the space where that difference is, is recognized, but also respected. And I think part of that is as curators, you know, with that privilege of creating a space of extraordinary people. And I'm so lucky with who I get to sort of sit around the table with. Part of the responsibility is to model, I think model behavior is to actually show, again, in terms of if, if we want to be respectful in terms of sharing and recognizing divergence, then we need to create the tools that can actually do that. We need to use language that allows that to actually happen in a way that doesn't necessarily ignore people because it's uncomfortable, but recognizes that we are in an uncomfortable space. So much of what I do, it's uncomfortable because it's really hard. I mean, it's just, you know, these are really hard questions. What should we or should we not be eating? And what are the consequences on people's you know, lives, their jobs, their cultures, their their income. You know, it's all, you know, this is, these are really touchy subjects and people take them and there's a lot of emotion in there. And I think to recognize the emotion as well in the space, plus all the layers of, as I said, you know, the power dynamics that are in there, the uh, across the different individuals that are there is, is tricky. But I think if we're modeling the right sort of behavior, if we're able to show that this is possible and that we can be vulnerable and demonstrate that empathy, but also head towards some solution spaces, then it becomes possible. Yeah. It's my very optimistic voice today. It's not always quite so optimistic. <laughs> but today, yes, yes, please. Thank you. 
There are two main questions that now pop up in my mind, and I would be curious for your point of view. One is the question. Yeah, it, it all starts with a question, and it all falls with a question. And I realized it was funny. Last week, I was hosting a facilitator's training, and we worked on questions and prompts. And I was reminded so vividly that it's actually tricky to ask the right question that prompts engagement and answers because it's this fine line between providing sufficient context so that someone can actually be creative and answer and still be defining very clear boundaries so that not every answer is possible. From your experience, how do you craft these questions that help you curate the dialogue that is then so necessary or to curate this divergence in the thinking? Um, first of all, thank you. I love the question. I just now want to get into your head and know how you do that as well. I guess, I mean, a couple of answers and then I guess examples with that. Because as soon as you mentioned you were thinking about a specific example, I think, oh my gosh, I was doing this exactly two days ago, two days ago, three days ago as well, with a really interesting sort of process, engagement process that I, I'm really fortunate to be working with at the moment. And we're calling these listening sessions. And we are actually setting up, a, creating a space where it's not even, again, us as, you know, me as a space curator, if you like. I'm not even curating the space at this point. All I'm doing is actually trying to work with somebody else who is actually local in that country whose job is known as a country convener. And their job is actually to listen to people in those in those countries to actually try and define and come towards some better solutions. And we're starting to create these new spaces, which we're calling these listening sessions, to actually enable them to be able to do this a lot better and to change the nature of the relationship from their international organization with local national organizations. And as they were trying to get more and more specific to the questions, and they were thinking, but the question's not specific enough, and is anybody going to understand? And this isn't, it's like, I was trying to say, okay, let's take a step back. First of all, number one, you know your community so much better than I do. So let's do this together. I'm sitting here in Paris. What do I know about what's happening in Lima? Honestly, I don't. I have some idea, but really not a lot. You've been there. You know the people. You. But then I was able to say as well, but think about the questions more as, I don't know, conversation openers rather than as questions. And once I become conversation openers, it takes the pressure off the question. And mm. as a conversation opener, you're still setting some boundaries. You're still giving a sense of what's in and what's out. But you're also able to say, here's some conversation opener type of questions. It doesn't matter what order you answer them in, or even if you, you know, in, in, by definition in conversations, we don't ever answer questions in any given order and we mix answers into multiple sentences. But so I was sort of trying to encourage the team there to open to the idea that we've got some openers to the conversation and they are quite structured because we know that we want to talk about you know, impact and we know we want to talk about collaboration and we know how to frame that within that particular context, but then don't get too worried about how that comes out in the conversation or where that takes it and let us then make sense of that together as we go forward. And mm -hmm. so I guess for me, the, the next part of the question, and I will come back to the question is really important. Oh my gosh, it's really important. And I often actually just back away from it and leave, you know, other people to start with a question. It's like, I, what do I know about your subject, your topic, your expertise? 
you know, I can help craft that maybe, but you really know what it is that you want to get to so we can move through into the solution space. So again, I do think it's a totally collaborative co-creation effort. I don't think any one person should even be left alone to craft these really important questions. But then I think the other side of it that's really important, as the conversation gets going, how do we actually make sense of what's coming out in the conversation? This would be my next question. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Wrote the curation bit uh, down because I, yeah, I'm fascinated. Before that, and I love, just want to underline what you said, that the sequence of the question and when and how you ask them is not important And how I understand it is that it can be mixed and must be mixed because I was just thinking back to my time as a researcher, how much a question can actually prime someone so we can manipulate the responses and the thinking process by asking questions in a very specific sequence and thereby come to a response or to an agreement that is maybe not the one that was uh, would have emerged in a free space. No, I mean, I totally agree. So I think there's, you know, I think there's the, there's all the danger of the questions, isn't it? That we can be incredibly manipulative through the questions that we ask. We, we're sort of predefining the answers through the questions. And if we're trying to, you know, what I'm trying to do is create as I said, the conditions for dialogue and conversation in, in these difficult mixes of, of lens of people, of organizations, of characters, of personalities, of power, then if I start manipulating the conversation through the questions themselves, then I'm doing, I'm, I'm falling into that pattern as opposed to opening the space for real conversation of which in a way, the questions are the signposts as you're, as you're sort of going through the journey, that they're signposting us through so that we are staying on track. And I do think that that is important. Then I've been having these, you know, very good, you know, these are very facilitated conversations coming back to facilitators. Is it going to be inductive or, or, or you know, or deductive? And it's like, really? Let's sort of, I think, let's put that to the side. And actually, what are we trying to really get to here? And let's see how to move through that journey together and keep everybody on board on the journey not have people falling you know falling off the bus or you know or missing the bus or you know you know my bus metaphor whichever particular metaphor you want on all this journey of conversation which i would hope leads to real you know real world solutions yeah um, and at that point then yes as i said i think the questions become your your signposts along the way and i think sometimes they We, we might go down a dead end. I'm now on my metaphor. You can't stop me. So we might go down a dead end on, on, and, and I think that's okay because I think you just don't know that not everything is predictable. And so then, you know, do a U-turn, come out, reframe. And it's interesting, as I, as you're saying, I'm thinking that, you know, there's the question bit that's really important, the sense making through that, but then there's the framing of the conversation that's also really important. And it's probably a little bit, It's a little bit different to the context. It's just really saying, why are we doing this? Mm. Again, what's in, what's out? You know, why are we legitimate here? So we don't set ourselves up to fail in that conversation. We get still responsible. We can hold ourselves to account through it. And that framing with the questions really helps the questions. Yeah. And I can see how this warm-up, because we're still in the warm-up phase. <laughs> 
<laughs> We're still not in the, in the actual deliberate dialogue yet. How this can also help to build this empathy that you referred to earlier, because depending on your question, I can only imagine that through your questions, you're also inviting some self-investigation. You spoke about biases, about different perspectives, maybe about agendas. Mm. So through these questions, how can I explore my own opinion that I might have thought that I have a very clear and strong opinion about the topic when I start filling out the, these surveys? And after survey three, I realize, oh, maybe it's more difficult than I thought. Or not. Or not. <laughs> there are lots of people who are still going to stay right there, yeah. absolutely convinced that they've got it right. You know, round three, they're still in it, which is as revealing, isn't it, as mm. those who are starting to think, oh, well, maybe there's another way of looking at this. Um, yeah. But it's, it's still revealing. I get, I guess one of the things, you know, through the in, in that sort of preparatory phase, you know, which has gone through multiple channels of sort of different bits of engagement. So there's a survey, there might be other multiple ways of engaging people. So in different ways, everybody feels that they're coming into the space, as I said, really prepared, readied also ready to be really quite actively involved. And so at that point then, you know, as I said, you know, co-creation, co-construction, co-co-co-co-co, all those sort of bits of that. This this part of it where increasingly, I'm, I'm convinced, and again, experimenting all the time, but I'm increasingly convinced that in any of these conversation spaces, these dialogue spaces, however small or big they are, whether they are, you know, with, I don't know, 12 people, or whether they are with a few hundred people, creating sort of roles, responsibilities, active sort of places for people to actually really take on a part of the actual conversation itself, for them to lead on that really shifts. It sort of shifts the dynamic. They then become the holders of that space as well, where you know, they might be you know, co-facilitating a breakout space or, uh, I don't know, framing a session in the space itself or coming to actually wrap that up and make sense of it or to be part of a note-taking format where everybody's seeing them take the notes visibly in the space itself. So, I mean, to the extent of, you know, a piece of work that we did last earlier this year with around 200 people over three days, we worked out at the end that every single person had played a specific active role at least once over the three days you know a panelist a co-curator a note taker everybody had taken on something over that time and they knew that ahead of time so they were all talking to each other in some format before they actually again came into the space itself they were already making connections and this idea that you know you're, you're creating the ability for them to make connections which is going to ease the conversation for a purpose it's not mm. again say it's not just to have conversations it really is for a purpose that actually then moves forward after that particular dialogue space itself yeah so and everyone steps into the space ready to commit exactly to, to take on an active role yeah and not just a bystander and before we are coming to the actual space where the dialogue then happens and i would actually be curious well this uh, goes on the parking for now. Curation. So you have these Google Sheets and Google Documents and Forms 
coming in with all these answers to questions to prompts. And AI is only a year old. <laughs> all the, the AI with the capacity that we could imagine to actually make sense of such amount of data. So I assume that you have and still do it manually with your own brain power. Of course. Yes. <laughs> and I would be curious on a few levels. One is how do you make sure that there is not your own bias shining through? Because I remember in my my own roles in the past, we had to go through large amounts of ideas and data. Although we want to be objective, there's always the slight subjectivity coming in that we look at things or even interpretation, how we interpret words, sentences. Do we put them in this bucket or that bucket? It's all informed by our own perception. But, I mean, I guess a couple of things. Like, with the RSV, this reflection blend Google Form thing, we actually don't do a lot of filtering of it. Exactly for that reason. We keep it as raw material. It ends up as a multi-page document. Now, assume, let's, let's assume there are three questions that were asked to begin with. It's gone for three rounds. Everybody's different responses have come out in a different color under each one. Some people have also put in you know, links to a journal article or their favorite podcast or whatever it happens to be. And you may turn up with, I don't know, 30 pages. And they will receive those. Everybody gets those 30 pages three days before the the dialogue actually takes place in the space itself. That's pretty much it. With maybe at some, you know, with references to it in terms of different people saying, this is what I picked out of it. This is the sense I made of it you know, through the actual space of the dialogue itself. But there's no intentional effort to actually really take that apart because in a way by the time you actually get there it's done its job of creating connections showing convergence and divergence getting into real content helping shape the actual agenda of the dialogue itself because those insights have helped actually shape the agenda itself your question of then what do you do you know what do i personally do with questions of bias i find that really hard because i'm i would like to think that i'm aware of my own bias I don't know how aware I am. I systematically, at the beginning of any dialogue now, will talk to questions of privilege and bias and ask, again, and talk to my own and actually give real examples of, like, real life example of who I am, where I come from, what my background is, my life story in a way, in a way that I would never have done a few years ago. So I guess for me, it's so important that first of all, I want to make myself vulnerable to people in the room, which gives them permission to do that or not do it, depending on where their comfort is over, over the time in that space. And then in terms of the sort of that sense-making role, again, I think that's something that is done collaboratively all the way through a dialogue. I don't think it's about one person doing that. And so the very way that as a dialogue evolves, multiple people are working together to pull the threads of the conversation together and then to talk to the threads that they're hearing mm. about, which, yes, as a curator of the space, I'll be doing as well. Absolutely. But not only. And so, again, am I able to listen really hard and then adjust what I'm thinking as I'm listening to others? And so creating as many possibilities for people, you know, everybody in the room to be able to say, this is actually the sense I'm making of this and using tools to help do that. And so 
it's sort of part of the design and of the sort of the design part of it. So it's part of the design integrated into, I think, that that space as well is giving everybody the opportunity to to, to shape so, it. To shape it. And these are the threads that are coming out. And this is the direction that we're going in. And then to stress test. So again, one of the things that we've introduced, I've introduced a lot is at specific moments to bring those sort of insider outsider people in who haven't actually been part of the conversation, mm-hmm. but can then listen to what's come out and critique it because they know the subject, they're respected. They're probably going to be the carriers, the owners of the results that come out. It gives more of a chance for there to be traction of what comes through the the conversation as well. And to have them coming in to, as I said, to stress test the the results through not just at the end, but through the actual process itself. Mm. So basically you're creating small, almost prototypes. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. And so this means that everyone gets the raw material, so to speak, and then also shares the responsibility of reading through it, making sense of it, and then maybe following certain threats. Because I realized then that there are different dimensions to this data. It's not only all the answers to all the questions, but also how an individual might have changed their perspective over time throughout the different So how are the answers to the third questionnaire different from the answers to the first questionnaire? This adds tremendous complexity to the... I love it. So, so you, are you uh, to be honest, you were definitely taking this even further than we've even thought about taking it. Because I don't think we've ever taken, the, as I said, this incredible document that we come to. And I've always said to the community that we're working with, this is such a precious document. And I feel that we've never done enough with it because, you know, as all of us as we're sort of pulling together these sort of these these spaces for conversation these gatherings we get caught up in the organization and talking to other people and seeing what the design is happening and then we actually lose track of something which is so content rich in terms of the messages coming out of it i mean i think we build on it just because people have gone through that process so they've already done that mental shift there's something's happened mm-hmm anyway when they come into that space in terms of their knowledge you know basically they're there there's a there's a better common understanding of what we're actually dealing with in terms of the content in terms of the people who are involved and i think that's already great and then the conversation will build on that and so there'll be more content coming in and there'll be more conversation to actually work that through but what i'm hearing from you and that's really useful is actually there's just there's so much more that we can do to exploit this extraordinary rich conversation that's happened even before the so-called real conversation even starts and then the question is is it what are the costs because resources are limited time is limited also the attention span of everyone then coming into the space and i there's beauty in then thinking okay everyone is responsible to whatever has happened before and extract whatever they need and then we trust that we'll work with whatever's needed And maybe now it's uh, the perfect time to just run an AI over it. I mean, what these tools nowadays can do and to have a mind map of topics with that is a mouse click away. And then you don't have to do it, but it facilitates the absorption of all the information maybe without manipulating it. So it's so interesting, isn't it? So I think there would be, I think AI would be brilliant uh, actually working through that information and actually a lot of 
the if you like the sort of the responses and the information that that sort of comes through any of these conversations because they're always complex and they're quite hard to make sense of and i think it'd be brilliant the other my sort of my reticence is that i know for me personally and i know for some of my colleagues is reading through it though is also really important for me as the, mm. again back to curating a space the more i understand where everybody is coming from, the different nuances, the language people are using, the that evolution from round one to round three, the better I think I'm going to be to be able to work in that space itself. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. So I've always Super. tried to take the time to be able to do that. I'm just thinking sort of out loud at this point as well. You know, we work a lot with uh, with a mural whiteboard, um, which I totally love. And then are hit by the massive information that arrives over, you know, a period of time onto onto that mural. You start getting all that stuff on it. And even if we're trying to do the sense making all the way through and pull things together and make connections, there's still a lot there. So again, how do you actually take that information and run it through AI? We just recently did it in Nairobi with a, with a group of people who were trying to come up with a a sort of global ambition statement around environment and and biodiversity. And literally through the outputs on a whole range of post-its, which are mural, into AI and said, okay, tell us, you know, what should we be saying? You know, give us a narrative in effect. It was brilliant as a first stab, but it was brilliant. And, of course, once you put the information in, it came out in whatever, three minutes, and it would have taken – you know, somebody at, you know, midnight on between day one and day two, you know, a couple of hours to do. And it was a great way, again, to start the conversation. Yes. Nothing you could use publicly with anybody, but it did the job that we needed at the time. And for me, that was an eye-opener. And so so I'm, I think there's real value. I just need to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, less complex, I think, nowadays than one would think. And I agree that it's again, it's a conversation opener. So you can use AI to do some of the the nasty work to boil it down and then have real people to, okay, how does it feel? How does it sit? What's the wording? How do, does it resonate? And also cross-check with a few sticky notes because at the end of the day, we also don't want to trust the machine totally because it might totally overweight one idea that was there by coincidence and then suddenly impacts the outcome to a larger than extent than it than wanted. So I agree, but I think that's also where I would say that's why at certain moments bringing in those inside and outside of voices, bringing in yes. those other voices to actually do that check through, to do that reality check, to say, you know, you must be joking. Actually, this is really going down or, or not understandable or massive area missing here. Or if you really wanted me to take that on board, you know, within my policy instrument, I'm never going to do it. Why well, I'm going to do it. And this is really compelling, but you need this piece of research to actually come in behind it. It could be a whole range of different things, but those critical voices, I think, are really essential and then sort of being known you know the timing when to bring them in mm. and again, they can't just be th- they can't just parachute in in a way that's inappropriate so the individual that they've been briefed that they're comfortable that they know what they're coming into that sometimes it just doesn't work because you know the timing's wrong because you never know what's going to happen with timing anyway so the conversation's gone in one direction and 
this very important person is waiting to come in for two hours. It's just not going to work. So there's all that mm. quality of, you know, I think as, you know, as we, again, curate those spaces, but there's some really good practice and some good principles that we can sort of try and apply. And then there's an ideal. And then after that, mm. it takes, you know, lots of thinking on your feet and agility. And I would be curious about these principles because as you said, when I, I just realized that you bring in these externals and then in that space, a certain lingo has developed, a certain culture has developed, how we communicate. Are we practicing radical candor with each other or are we playing it safe and being nice to each other? And then someone comes in being radical. <laughs> All these things can totally put a, the safe space at risk that you have created and nurtured since the beginning. No, I agree. So I think it's high risk. Again, I think, I mean, I think I agree with that. There's real risk in bringing in, you know, a, somebody or a couple of people into a space where you've created that new community, that community culture, which at the beginning you thought was never going to happen. And that magic does generally happen and it is extraordinary. So I think the the choice of the individuals, which is why, as I said, I, I tend to call them the insider outsiders, the mm -hmm. They're the friends, they're your critical friends. They're not coming in to destroy. They're coming in to continue to construct, to co-construct, to build forward in a way that is positive and supportive. And so that they understand that, that that's been part of what they've been asked to do. They understand who's already in the room, you know, what the atmosphere is like when they come in, and that they're also ready for somebody like me to say, actually, no, sorry. It's just not going to work out. We're really deep in a conversation now. We thought it was going to be great, but not good timing. So I think all of that's really important. But when it does happen and when it works, it can be really transformative mm. in shifting to that, you know, I guess shifting to a real alignment and strategic direction from the people in the room from something that might have felt a little bit incoherent and tentative to actually being challenged to really commit to each other to something which they will take forward together. Yeah. And that that moment of transformation is really, you know, that's another bit of magic, isn't it? That's really interesting to see that happen. Yeah, and I can imagine that it's also some basic behavioral laws at play that then suddenly you have an outsider so you are defending in air quotes an idea that you have created together and then you want to make it work so even if you were in a dispute or in a in controversy before the external person has happened suddenly you're on the same team absolutely absolutely so often you know i would i would couch these as literally as pitching moments yeah so, yeah so so you've got maybe two or three groups there who, you know, they again who never thought they would actually be actually pitching together, are pitching together to they're pitching together in relation to the others in the room. That's already just a fun thing to do mm -hmm. at that moment in, in in a process, but also in relation to these others who were coming in, who are just the outsiders. And I think again, the outsiders who each have a particular role that they're taking. They're they're not arbitrarily sort of chosen off the street they really are there because you know part of what they will do is actually be able to potentially 
co-own the conversation that's actually been taking place that they've not been part of. And as leaders, then they co-own it as leaders going forward. And that's also potentially really powerful of this sort of working through leadership at that point as well. Fascinating. And now we are speaking for almost an hour and we still haven't <laughs> we didn't speak about the actual dialogue. I thought I was speaking about the dialogue there, so I think I'm okay. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, and I'm curious, so mm -hmm. what I imagine is that you're working on these big, wicked problems of potential national, at least, at least national scale, maybe even regional, global scale. So I can imagine NGOs or governments or, or non-governmental institutions. And then... How do you know whom to bring into the space who actually sits down to dialogue? And when I think of 200 people in the space, although they have done all these preparation. 200 people is a lot. <laughs> let's talk about 50. That's they fair. step into the space. And then what? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, you just asked me a whole load of questions there. Who to know who to bring is, is essentially, you know, what makes what makes a, a, a good deliberate dialogue? What makes, you know, is who's actually going to be sitting around the table together? What is the blend of individuals in terms of who they are as individuals, both and, and the institutions, the organizations, the communities that they represent is, is essential. So even starting to have a conversation about who they are is, is one of the very first conversations I would want to have with the institutional convener or institutional conveners that, that I tend to or we tend to partner with mm -hmm. because they have real convening power themselves. They have a convening mandate, which sometimes maybe they're not so good at the convening and they don't always actually use their convening mandate because they're doing other things. But by definition, they are institutional conveners with a convening mandate and with convening power. And at that point together, we'll start to actually think about who is it that really needs to be in the room. And that might extend to actually creating, I'm just thinking about uh, something that we're just starting now, of actually creating a, a small steering committee, which actually includes some of those institutions themselves to actually start thinking about who needs to actually be part of the wider gathering that we're going to be having with X hundred people to actually make sure that we're actually really thinking about, you know, the right people at that point. The guidance or the sort of thinking that I would always, or the framing I'd want to bring into that is to actually really think about questions of power, of agency, and of bias as those conversations are happening. Are we really bringing the right voices in? Are we inviting those people in in a way that they really are going to be able to come and then they're going to be readied and be able to feel that they can contribute? Are those who have more power going to be aware of that in the room? So questions of power are essential and they're often subjects that people don't want to talk about at all. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, you're a facilitator. Why would you want to talk about power? Well, actually, this is what it's all about at the end of the day. So that's the beginning of who to start thinking about the, the the blend and so again you know in some communities or in some environments you know i would be saying you know well, you know where's where's the private sector here you know private sector is a really important piece of the puzzle here who share exactly the same challenges that you're looking at why aren't they here in the room and i'll get sort of oh my god we can't invite the private sector this is going to be too tricky or we don't believe in that and and so there will be a whole conversation about how to actually shift that in terms of being able to then actually have that, as I said, the right people in the room. 
Uh, and when it's not the right people, the conversation is not going to be the right conversation and it's really not going to go anywhere. And I've been in many of those situations as well. And it's just frustrating for everybody. And it's a lot of effort to actually find yourself in a room where you actually are not comfortable or, you know, yeah, and the other people are really nice, but actually they're not contributing because they don't have the knowledge or they don't have the influence. And so the sphere of influence, I think, is a really interesting part of who needs to be in the room. And then the power question, is this something you would address beforehand or once they're in the room? I don't really know. I mean, I think, I think you know, it's the, I think we're doing it all the time. I think this question of power is just the dynamic across people is just so prevalent all the time. When is it made explicit? You know, I, I would always want to bring issues of power, make this explicit as early as possible in any conversation in a way that that other people can hear. And so not everybody, if you talk about power, lots of people just can't hear that word or it doesn't mean anything or it's just scary. And so finding ways into the conversation mm. to give recognition to the differences of power, you know, in in a room, let alone outside of the room, given that we're dealing with these wicked problems, which are generally you know, really ingrained with these sort of chronic power imbalances is just really, really important. But finding a way of doing that, depending on mm -hmm. who, you know, who you've got in the room, is going to depend on, you know, depend yeah. on some different things. And then maintaining that throughout in a way that is sometimes unpleasant and sometimes explicit. You know, again, you know, if, if there's a breakout space and you've got a couple of people who are part of the, you know, the convenience, part of the conversation, who've been asked to co-curate or co-facilitate that space, you know, think about what combinations. I always, you know, we always try and put a couple, you know, two people in to co-facilitate a breakout space, not one to actually already make the connections between them because otherwise maybe they won't make it, but also to start to address those issues around power and voice right through from the facilitation all the way, you know, all the way through. But it sounds, it sounds very nice. And I don't think, I mean, it sounds, you know, nice. I think it's one of the most difficult things to get right. I think it's just immensely difficult. Yeah, because there are also just habits that you need to fight. And then I can imagine that the fact that everyone has a contributing role over the time of the conversation might help to flatten the womb, that everyone contributes and everyone is maybe in the scribe or in the facilitator role, but still... <laughs> Yeah, and it's. And I don't think we ever flatten it. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, I think for me, I, I give recognition that there's just the power imbalances are there, but at least mm -hmm. give recognition to that, and then, you know, create, you know, that brave space so that people feel that they can actually contribute despite the imbalances. Because we're not gonna, you know, we're, we're not gonna deal with all those imbalances through through a particular dialogue. But at least to give recognition to that, I think, is really important. If yeah. difficult, yeah. I think sometimes to call out. When you know there's just you know there's just a blatant disrespect that is happening in the space, and and to find a way of doing that is also really hard. I mean, personally, I find that really hard. Without blaming, or finger pointing, or finger pointing, or doing it in a way which is being made clear to everybody in the room, so everybody knows what is acceptable, not acceptable behavior, and at the same time, you're maintaining the safe space so the conversation can continue so i would you know anybody that's got tips on that now i would love to hear them but i i mean for me personally I, i think it takes my own personal courage in a space where i don't have that much courage i have it i think in other in other ways but i find that 
particularly difficult mm. because you're opening yourself personally to conflict with somebody else. And I don't really want to be doing that. I mean, and have done that quite, re- I mean, recently I found myself having to call people out because, again, as the curator of the space, I think it's my responsibility. It's our responsibility to do that. It's not everybody else's. Yeah. I think that's when we take on a on true responsibility to be able yeah. to call, you know, that bad behavior out. And I think it's um, particularly difficult if you are a guest in someone else's culture on top of that. So in a role that might be regarded already as privileged, you spoke about Peru, you spoke about Kenya, coming there as a white woman, um, is already a connotation, and then calling out behavior that doesn't fit into the space that you have defined. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky, and it doesn't mean you don't, but you do do it. And, you know, and again, as I said, I think personally, you know, I ask myself more and more those questions as this, you know, educated European white woman, you know, you know what role do I really have mm-hmm. to be curating these spaces, which are largely around looking towards, you know, really enabling real change in the global South, you know, is this really my, my role to be able to doing it? And first, I think, I mean, I'm, At least I'm asking the question, so I think that's probably a good thing. But they're, they are real. I mean, as I said, they're real, honest questions. And yeah, there might be a day when I actually say, okay, basta, stop. There are other ways of being able to actually navigate in this space as well. So I think there's a bit of just being, I hope for all of us, just being a little bit of myself, being humble about you know, what can and can't be done. Totally. And I think we have learned a lot from decades of development aid, air quotes, and There's as much on the other side or on the other perspective that having someone coming in who is not involved, who has an outside perspective and who can be then in the curating role. So um, this as such is a wicked question. I agree. <laughs> and I think if you, if you can also call out behavior that you see that is beneficial to the conversation and that serves as role models, I think then it helps to also be balanced there to say, okay, this is what we want to see. This is what I observe. And here's an example of something that we want to avoid, although it's human and it can happen. I totally agree with you, Marilyn. And I think part of what that is, just as you were saying it, is again, as I was saying before, is this idea that we, you know, I, I, I would hope that my aspiration is to be able to model that behavior, to be able to demonstrate that it is possible whether it's calling out whether it's more you know curating a space whether it's making people feel comfortable to have real conversations to be able to demonstrate that this is a real possibility there's a real possibility to be you know that stubborn optimist and to move towards some real solution spaces as opposed to just sort of think about you know the you know the bad that's going on around us today but we actually can overcome that through collaborative real conversation so that modeling is really important and it comes back to the modeling with empathy and with you know staying modest and humble and yeah with a sort of i hope with a quieter voice mm. i hope you know again yeah. I'm sure, well, you know, keeping the voice quiet is probably a better thing than doing too much i can't believe i'm saying this after over an hour of us talking together doing too much talking but this is a lot of fun <laughs> it would be a shame if you wouldn't do any talking on a podcast to be <laughs> Very honest. 
<laughs> and, uh, and there's so many topics I still want to cover. You mentioned a while ago principles, and I promise to come back to that. Are there a set of principles that are, let's say, air quotes, universal that you would bring to any of those conversations? Or are these are principles evolving from those who are there? I know I would, you know, if I could say to you, I've got a set of nine principles in my head and these are them, I, I would give them to you, but I don't. So I don't have a set of principles that I work to or I expect anybody to work to, or I think you can just lay out there. I, I think there's some pieces which are components which are consistent. As I said, you know, before, I think there's consistency in in approach, you know, approach of collaboration and empathy and trust building and inclusion. And I don't think those would be surprising to anybody. I think there's consistency in this expectation that if you want to have really good intentional conversation that leads to some or unlocks real solutions, you know, real world solutions, it's going to take real effort. And that's a really hard message to get across to people because today people don't want to put much effort into anything. They want to pitch up, have a chat, I don't know, uh, have a breakout space, fill in, you know, some post-its or not, and then be told this is these are the next steps, we're done, exactly. And then somebody else will write the report and it's all good. And actually saying that this is really going to take effort, effort in the preparation over weeks and months uh, from everybody, not just the organisers, but everybody involved, is going to take real effort in the space itself. This is not a series of show and tell presentations and Q&As or panel conversations or anything else. This is real collective thinking that plays on real collective intelligence. Well, that's tricky for people to actually think about. Oh my God, that sounds exhausting. And then coming out of the space, it actually requires a commitment to act. Mm -hmm. And so for me, th those are those those pieces which are consistent all the way through. After that, anything can happen in a way. It can happen in any in any in any format with any in any space. I guess the other thing I should have mentioned as well, because it's just it's just one of the things that's just important to me personally is I think the space itself, the physical space itself is really important. Mm. The physical space of conversations, including the virtual physical space. So I'm thinking about the two of us having this conversation right now. Both of us were relaxed, we're sitting down, the lighting's good, we're talking to each other eye to eye. It's as important as you've got 300 people in a in a room. How do you actually, you know, what room? Mm. Uh, how do you set that room up? How do you make people actually feel comfortable in that space? What are the informal spaces in the and the formal spaces. So that attention to those sort of details builds towards mm. the attention to the content and then to actually really being able to commit to action, you know, solutions and actions. Yeah. And I think it all comes together. I don't think it's a one or the other. Yeah, because through the space, you also model the respect you bring to it. It's how... How important is it really for everyone to have a voice? How far is it from some spaces to a microphone, for instance? Can everyone be heard, yes or no? Really important. So, I, mean, in, and, yeah. I was in Addis Ababa just a couple of weeks ago, and we ended up in this huge, rather wonderful, huge hall, and there were just 15 of us having a conversation, you know, around a, a table. 
with somebody who then decided that, you know, and she's absolutely brilliant. But for the first part of the conversation, she was standing up presenting. And then she ran. She's absolutely brilliant space curator, if you like. And she actually thought, oh, my gosh, I need to be sitting down at the same level as everybody else having the conversation. And ideally, which is what we did the following day, we need to be doing this in a smaller space, not in this huge hall, because in this huge hall, everybody felt so far away from each other. And it felt very formal. And we were trying to have an intimate conversation around some tricky subjects and changing a real power dynamic. And so it was a real example of a recognition of how the physical space itself really did matter. It didn't mean that the initial conversation wasn't good. It was great. But it but, shapes. But it really makes a difference. It reminds me of a, a boardroom where I used to work in a previous, when I still had a day job. So this boardroom with a table, massive table, and massive chairs and massive doors. And already from the architecture and the setup of the space, no creativity or change of mind or perspective could emerge because it, the space wouldn't facilitate that. Yeah, absolutely. And having said that, even with the worst possible spaces, you can shift things around. Mm. So, you know, so again, we were in a an amphitheater in the University of Montpellier you know, in October. So amphitheater that probably took, I don't know, 150, 200 people. It wasn't that big, but it was big enough. And there were just 30 of us or 35 of us. We were quite a small group. And we were there to have a super conversation with a group of people that generally never sit down in the same space together. They they present to each other. They mm. make speeches to each other. They have They shake each other's hands, but they never actually sit down and look at each other and really work through stuff together. And initially, you know, I looked at this amphitheater and I thought, oh my God, they're going to be sitting in rows. So they're going to have their backs to each other. And then people are going to be in the front as though they were lecturing. And somehow we shifted the dynamic in the room so that we actually got people moving around through the chairs, using a bit of the space on the front of the amphitheater, but, you know, before the screen. So we, did everything we could to cut mm. through the space that is formally presented so that actually by the end, people were literally just, you know, turning around and talking to people three rows behind without any problem at all. So for me, again, it was just like, even when the space initially looks like it's going to be horrible, the physical yeah. space, yeah, there are ways of working with that. It's not ideal, but there are ways of working with it to actually shift that mm. because you understand the space and then you can actually do something different and, and, and break through what it is, the identity it represents. Mm. And then making it explicit because also there's a power dynamic of course, implied in the space and the moment you make it implicit, explicit, you can work with it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So right. In the beginning, we made it explicit. I mean, I made it very explicit that this was not going to be how it was going to be to the point of, you know, I, I was curating that space and so found myself walking through and, you know, sitting beside pretty much everybody in the space rather than, you know, somebody speaking at a podium in the front. So, you know, it's like a podium, anyway, I would say, as soon as you see a podium, take it away. I have three more questions and <laughs> let's see how we squeeze these in. One would be, 
When do you know that the conversation is concluded? So when has the group arrived? And I remember that in our exploration call, you said that consensus is overrated. And thinking of the examples you gave of the conversations you are having, maybe consensus is just impossible. <laughs> so how do you know that you can say, oh, we have, or we can celebrate or we have progressed? So how do we know? I think I, mean, I think there's a couple of things in that. I think there's just a limit to what we can do as human beings around in a conversation. We get to a point when it's just we're exhausted. I mean, you know, this is it's a tiring thing to have conversation. And so there's a moment when you say, okay, done. You know, we've gone as far as we can for today. So I would You know, for me, in an ideal situation, conversations actually go over numbers of days. A dialogue is a multi-day process because I think the overnight digestion, letting it sink in, making sense of it as individuals and also as the people who are creating that space is just essential. It just makes so much difference in being able to actually start the next day fresh, review, move forward. And there's a sort of different acceleration that happens at that point. I think the other thing is just being, you know, that clarity of any dialogue, clarity of, of where we're we trying to land this, mm -hmm. you know, and having that right from the beginning. You know, what are we really trying to do here? And I think that's one of the most difficult things is to actually you know what is this for beyond, you know, the fun of just getting everybody together and having a good conversation. You know, from my point of view, I'm a very impatient person. So I just don't think that's good enough to say, you know, it's good to get people together and to have a And to, and to share. I think that's really important, just not enough. And so I think then to actually have the clarity of what is it that we're actually trying to get to, where are we trying to get to through this particular dialogue, knowing it's only one part of a much longer process. So again, mm -hmm. be careful about those expectations. We're not going to fix the world here. Uh, we're not going to fix all the problems, but we are going to make progress and be clear about how much progress, you know, where's the ambition in that? And then a be explicit about that, I think then does allow, you know, to be able to design something that allows us to get to, you know, at the end of whatever that period of time, two hours, three days, I don't know, we, whatever happens to be uh, where we need to get to and to be able to say, okay, this is great. We, we've actually really made it. And to do that celebration, we really have landed. We really mm -hmm. can commit together. Because I do think the celebration part of it is Absolutely, it's just so important. And I, I do think there's a natural end to conversations. I really do feel there, there's a moment when, I don't know, there's a sort of intuition, gut feeling. You say, okay, we're done here. Mm -hmm. In podcast interviews, very often it's the same. There's this one moment where it's just like, huh, feels complete now. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and I, I quite like that, but that, that, that takes... You know, that takes, you know, listening to your your intuition, to your gut. Again, you just need to, just takes a little bit of just really, really listening. And mm -hmm. very, very often, if it's a multi-day process, it will often actually end earlier rather than later. And I always find that really interesting. Is that just me because I just am desperate to get out of it? Or is it actually that we've actually come to the natural conclusion of this phase again it's a phase this is just one moment in time it's going to move forward to something else whereas the day before we would have been working you know until 11 o'clock at night we haven't had enough time there's never enough time but the actual final moment it feels like okay we're done here it's good it's part of that i don't there's a little bit of magic in this which i mm -hmm. like. 
I like the magic. Fascinating. Makes me think of uh, the magic or this intuition we have in our bodies that we usually wake up at the right time when we go to sleep, even without an alarm. So we have a sensation of, okay, something must be happening now. And maybe it's also this intuition of, um, or when I think of a traditional workshop that's facilitated with the process, we have to arrive to consensus at the end, or we have to arrive to a decision, or we have to write down some next steps and action plans. And then everything is just rushing there. And very often the next day or a week after, the group breaks up and I'm like, yeah, feels itchy. And I think having this different frame and expectation of a conversation of the dialogue that, okay, we won't change the world. It's not about having this one conclusion or solution, but being at peace with what we have discussed. I think, I mean, again, it's interesting. And then, but the consensus bit is another part of it. It's not putting pressure on consensus but raising the ambition bar, which is a, which is a different thing. So for me, the consensus, for me, the reason that I have a real issue with consensus is consensus tends to go to the lowest common denominator. If you want consensus, you'll do anything and everything you can to get agreement and you'll negotiate it. And it's a negotiated conversation to get to consensus. So if you're having a dialogue, the last thing you're doing is negotiating. You're actually having a conversation to actually agree to resolve, to commit, but not necessarily to actually say, we'll agree to agree, might agree to disagree on a whole range of things. And that's absolutely fine. I think at that point, then you can agree to disagree that the ambition going into the room, though, would be to align on a common destination. Can we actually agree on where we actually are really trying to get to here? We can agree to disagree on the way forward, and there's going to be multiple pathways to do that, whatever happens. We might agree to disagree on where to put some of the effort. It all needs to go into policy or it goes needs to improve science or the science is right or the science is wrong or the geographical prioritization. Well, it could be a whole range of different things. Um, but the alignment on the ambition raises the ambition bar immediately, starts mm -hmm. to say, And that's beyond that conversation at that point. That's what we're going to be trying to work towards over over time, over over you know months and years. And then the pressure's off a little bit on personal consensus. The pressure could be on as an individual, what am I committing to coming out of this dialogue? And I would hope that there is a bit of pressure on that. For me, you know, I would love to think that people coming out of any dialogue space feel compelled to act. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they do, but I would like to think that they feel compelled to act. But that's very different, as I said, to negotiated consensus-driven space. And that's what international negotiations are based around, mm -hmm. you know, that negotiation towards consensus, which then ends with immense disappointment in general. And it rather feels like at the end, everyone has their own personal commitment to act. So they have to look in the mirror. It's not something that there's where there's peer pressure, they signed a document, but hopefully through the dialogue and the time, you have created enough incentive and enough understanding that empowers the individual to act. Yeah. So and also if they've made if they've articulated that, they're creating a sense of accountability, aren't mm. they? When they say yeah. to you, I'm gonna do this, I articulate it out loud. I'm much more likely to do it than to think about it in my head. So yes. This collective mutual accountabilities that start to be agreed on 
through again sort of by definition if, if the dialogue's been really authentic and intentional there's been a community or you talked about as a culture that's been created through that and some of it will move forward some of it of course won't some people will go away and say this was great or it wasn't or the food was good or i don't know i didn't my kettle didn't work in my hotel room whatever you know all the normal stuff but there's going to be something in there which can be built on going forward and again i, th- I think we have a tendency to make this mistake that everything's going to be solved in one in one space through one facilitated curated conversation and it's just not how it works what makes a dialogue fail in a minute <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> um no restrictions i think we've talked about lots of it you know if you don't get the right people into the room the questions of power lack of clarity on you know, on final destination, on, you know, what are we doing this for? If, you know, that's just really important. Poor ambition and risk-taking. So I think the dialogue really is about ambition and risk-taking. And if the room just doesn't want to take any risks, that's really terrible. I think one of the things that's I become, this is just my thing of the moment, I guess, is dialogue often fails through poor leadership. Um, I think a lot of dialogue for it to actually really move forward beyond conversation so you know so that there's the deliberate dialogue space of, of real conversation for it to move into commitment to solutions or pathways that takes a little bit of leader a lot of leadership courage and clarity mm. um, which the risk is that gets delegated to the person who's curating the space the leadership And I think for deliberate dialogue to really be able to move forward is when the leaders of dialogue themselves can actually really own not just the process, but actually what actually comes out of it and to take that forward. So for me, dialogue failing is about the impact of dialogue. It's not the actual mm. what happens spaces. Yeah. It's all about what is the depth of impact that happens through dialogue. Uh, and leadership is often feeling a bit in that space right now thank you and what i hear is that this risk taking is again on different levels so there's a personal risk taking of showing up authentically involving engaging with other perspectives but then there's also the risk on the leadership level taking the risk to guide toward that but then also the risk outside of this protected space presenting it to policymakers, civil society, and yeah. bringing it forward. So as you said, it's in the space itself, it's out of the space. So there's a lot of, there's quite a bit of risk taking, or, you know, you could say opportunity seizing, depending on the way you want to actually think about it. Um, and being able to, you know, being able to curate a space is also about trying to create the conditions for those leaders to be able to then feel that this is actually something they can really take on to create the traction to be able to actually take that towards greater you know greater depth of of impact so yes there's so much in there gosh what makes it fail but my curiosity uh, i tried in a minute though i thought it was quite good yeah yeah and i think uh, it was not surprising and still i'm glad I'm, i asked It's always good to have condensed version. And then there's another question that I always ask, and you might have answered it at a at another time, but I still want to be explicit. Your number one 
Facilitation Challenge. Oh. Okay, so it's a bit of the same thing. So you've sort of just asked me. I mean, just I need to think about it. I mean, the, the, you know, I'd, I'd say the 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 leadership thing is is definitely yeah. Mm. Can I can I have multiple number ones? Absolutely. Fortunate, isn't it? We don't. We also don't discriminate about number twos. Oh. <laughs> so of course. It's really hard to say this. So it sort of goes all the way back to the right at the beginning of the conversation. I don't think the challenges are in the tools and techniques of facilitation. I think there's some great ones and we can create them and experiment. So I don't think that's that's really where the challenges are. I think the biggest challenge is probably being able to embrace the tension in the room, you know, mm. in the preparation of the room and the space itself and coming out of the space and embracing that tension and really not just as somebody who's trying to hold that space or holding it with a, with a team, but also for everybody in the room to be able to embrace the attention um, and, and to work with it and to lean into it, I think is a really, it's, it's a really big challenge. And we've talked about it quite a lot. I think that is a really big challenge and it takes time. And one of the things I have noted recently as well is quite a lot of people wanting to squeeze time. So whereas they might have said, let's actually take a little bit more time for these deliberate dialogue spaces. And I was saying, well, why can't we do this in two or three hours? You know, we know what the subject is. We can get these people together. Let's just have the conversation and we'll, again, we'll fix it. And it's like, oh, if you're really going to embrace the tension, you need time to actually be able to, to do that, to feel comfortable and then to work with that and then to look forward. So yes, embracing, embracing the tension and then there's a whole lot of others of, of, you know, what's really difficult, you know, creating accountabilities. I don't know. You can go on and on and on. But I think yeah. that's in terms of the depth of challenge. Yeah. And I remember what you mentioned before, the calling out of behavior that is not useful in the space. Really hard. That's really hard. And, and it links to taking on the full responsibility of somebody who's holding a space and not expecting others to do it on your behalf. And, you know, there's, there's all the, you know, the co-curation, and as I said before, co-curation and co-construction and basically just, you know, sharing the load. But there's a moment when actually I think there is a part when there is a real responsibility and, and, and part of that lies with the fact that you are there as a outsider coming in and holding a community and then you do have a responsibility to actually really hold that, hold that community safely with respect and uh, yeah that's hard it's hard to do yeah yeah that's where the courage comes in i think so and mm. courage and sensitivity yeah. and timing and i think there's a whole lots of different things in there wow thank you so much it's been great yeah and <laughs> i'm sure we could dig deeper and deeper oh so much yes and um, I'm the same thing with you now. I feel I want to sort of turn the tables and now listen to you for the next hour and a half. <laughs> Can we do that? This was your time to shine. <laughs> Thank you. I loved the conversation. I so many perspectives and just yeah, things to think about. No, for me too. Thank you. I don't get any moments to think and reflect like this. There's another challenge: finding the time to actually think and reflect and learn is so important so thank you so much for the opportunity today to do this thank you thank you for staying tuned and for listening until the very end i hope that you found the inspiration and the wisdom that you are looking for and i hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you never miss any of the interviews with in another inspiring facilitator from across the world 
I'm devoted to continue this podcast and to deliver weekly an episode that maintains the quality that you expect and you deserve. And if you would like to help me to maintain this quality and to keep the podcast free, please help us visit workshops.work slash support to make a small donation to keep the podcast free. Thank you so much. I hope to be in your ears next week.